Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 57 of the PHA Podcast features the man who is Venna. Philadelphia Flyers since day one, Joe Watson, who delivers over an hour of amazing and humorous hockey stories about his remarkable 14-year NHL career with the Boston Bruins, Philadelphia Flyers, and Colorado Rockies. A two-time NHL All-Star and a member of the BC Hockey Hall of Fame and the Flyers Hall of Fame, Watson's unlikely journey from Smithers, BC to two-time Stanley Cup champion is truly fascinating. And you'll learn a lot, too. For example, did you know that Joe was once a prospect for the New York Yankees baseball team? Joe's NHL career began as a roommate of rookie Bobby Orr with the Boston Bruins in the six-team NHL in 1966-67. He was then selected by the Philadelphia Flyers in the 1967 expansion draft as the league expanded from six to 12 teams. The hard-hitting Watson was an anchor on the blue line for Flyers Club, which progressed from a solid expansion team in late 1960 to the notorious Broad Street Bullies of the 1970s. Stay tuned for an interesting discussion that includes insights on Bobby Clark, Bernie Perrant, Bobby Orr, Fred Shiro, Rick McLeish, Barry Ashby, Bob Hound Kelly, Dave the Hammer Schultz, Ed Snyder, and of course Joe's younger brother Jimmy, who joined the Flyers in 1972 and became an NHL All-Star as well. After a horrific leg injury abruptly ended his career in 1978, Joe embarked on a successful 41-year business career with the Flyers and Comcast Sports, and he and the Flyers alumni continued to devote countless hours to growing youth hockey in the Delaware Valley. It's genuine salt-of-the-earth guys like Joe Watson that make this game great. And it's why we love hearing their stories. Remember, home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org. And you can also reach us anywhere on social media, at ProHockeyAlumni. Your comments, ratings, and reviews on iTunes are extremely valuable in increasing the visibility of the show. I read all of your comments, and they are greatly appreciated. The PHA Podcast joins ex-NHL pros Frank Simonetti and Tom Laidlaw in supporting the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEALs Foundation. Please visit warriorforlifefund.org for ways you can help our nation's finest. Now, let's talk classic hockey with number 14, Joe Watson. 
Well, we're thrilled to have our next guest. He's a two-time Stanley Cup champion, a two-time NHL All-Star, a member of the Flyers Hall of Fame, a member of the BC Hockey Hall of Fame, number 14, Joe Watson. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. <laughs> Boy, you did a very in-depth <laughs> in-depth uh, theory on me, for God's sake. I didn't know you knew all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we can stop right there. We know it all now. But uh, Yeah, you do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I was curious. Um, yeah. Being uh, of one of uh, six sons uh, living in Smithers, uh, British Columbia, but at the time there was no NHL team, of course, in the uh, six-team NHL at that point. And I was curious if you had a, did you uh, have a dream of playing the NHL? Did you kind of adopt another NHL team watching Hockey Night in Canada? Oh, boy, that's a great question, Mark, because I tell you, uh, you know, you know, I started skating at three and a half. I had a chair, and my uncle had a chair for me, and I'd move, go out in the ice and, and push off the chair when I felt comfortable, and then when I felt not comfortable, I'd grab on back onto the chair, but <laughs> that's how I learned to skate. And then at seven years old, I remember one time very distinctly a, a guy named Claude Munson, he was a local druggist in Smithers of 500 people at the time, and uh, I grabbed a puck and went through this whole team and scored a goal, and and I come back to the bench, and he says, Joey, you keep on playing like that, you'll play in the National Hockey League one of these years. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, holy mackerel, really? And he said that to me, and you know how it ingrained in my mind here? I'm 76 years old, and I still think back to the day he said that to me. Wow. And it's funny how somebody can make such an impact in your life in an early stage in your life and, and, uh, and stays, with it, stays with you the rest of your life. Uh, but, you know, I progressed from there, and then uh, uh, we, had, we were in the British Columbia Juvenile Championships in a place called Prince George, British Columbia, and we, we didn't have a, we had players, but we didn't have a lot of players. But we went up against towns like Kamloops and uh, um, Vancouver and Prince George and ourselves. They had four regional champions, and we were the one from the north, way up north. And mm -hmm. uh, so we go down there and uh, we get to the finals. And so after the game, we got knocked. We got beat in the finals by uh, by Kamloops. And this guy comes down and knocks knocks on the door and introduces himself and said he's a scout for the Boston Bruins. Uh, this is 1959, <laughs> wow. and and we had no idea there was somebody there watching us. And uh, but he told our coach, "I'm interested in three of your players, and, and one being me." And I remember this day, Mark. I still have a letter today when I got it. I got an, an invitation from the Estevan Bruins. They were a farm team of the Boston Bruins at the time, mm -hmm. uh, inviting me to go to Estevan, Saskatchewan, for a training camp. And so it took me five days to get there. A friend of mine <laughs> drove me down there. Dirt roads, you know, 2,800 miles away from home, there's dirt roads and no pavement. Oh, God. So that's why it took us a long time to get there. But anyway, I get there, and I meet a guy named Scotty Monroe, who is the manager and the owner of the team. And uh, so... He comes in with a cigarette. I said, got a big, jolly guy and cigarette. I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then what I found out after the meeting, he says, listen, uh, we have a, we had a very good team last year, and we're looking for four players. That's all we need because our team is loaded. We're going to be a very good team this year. And, and uh, then I found out at the time there's 104 guys trying out for four positions. Oh, wow. So I said to the scout, I said, why the hell did you invite me something like this? And he says, Joey. I didn't think you had a chance. I wouldn't have invited you. That's all I had to hear. So I go out there, and, and uh, 
getting three or four fisticuffs. I don't think I won one of them. But, you know, after five days, I caught the rhyme, still there's a hundred guys gone. <laughs> and that was the start of it. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, talk about the influence of Scotty Monroe, kind of a, a famous name in junior hockey circles in Canada. I don't know a lot about him, but I do know yeah. I've heard a lot of positive things. What type of influence was he on your game? Well, he, he was a big influence. I mean, he gave me a chance, and... Uh, and um, and I remember him calling me in after I made the team, and he says, Joey, we're so proud of you. You come from a northern region way up. We've never had a hockey player from that area come in here and get a chance or have a chance to make it. You made it. And what we want to do is we want to sign you to a contract. I said, a contract to play hockey? He says, yes. <laughs> we're going to give you $75 a month. <laughs> wow. And so $60 went to room and board, and I had $15 to spend every month, and I thought I was living high off the hog. Man, this is great. <laughs> here, I'm, here I'm playing something I really enjoy, and I'm getting paid to do it, you know. And uh, Well, what a lot of people don't know, too, kind of around that time, you're also a prolific baseball player. And yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You know, I... Uh, it's funny you say that because uh, when I was 16, I went to the British Club, 17, I went to the British Columbia Championships. They were in Victoria, British Columbia, and uh, uh, I was playing senior baseball, and I was only 16. I was playing for a team from Terrace, uh, Terrace, British Columbia, which is up in our area, and they put a team together to go down there, and I really did well, and, uh, uh, you know, I got an offer to go to... Uh, I, was, I got an, uh, an offer from the Yankees. There was a guy named Eddie Taylor. He was a scout from uh, Seattle. And he asked if I was interested in going to try out, going down to Fort Lauderdale. That's where the Yankees training camp was. Mm -hmm. I says, oh, boy, this is really nice. But I, I just committed to hockey, and I think I have a better chance of playing hockey than I do baseball. There's just so many Americans, such great American athletes play baseball. I just think my chances are much better in in uh, in hockey than baseball, so I kind of turned it down. Right, one and of the, I, yeah, one of those life know, decisions you make that uh, alters the course of your life, and a good one, of course. Yeah, yes, yes, it worked out very well for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, How did you, you know about the baseball? Geez, you you really did it in depth, uh, <laughs> in depth here. My goodness. Well, this oh, is Joe Watson. <laughs> I've been looking forward to to talk to you for a long time. So, I, oh, um, isn't that nice? That's nice, Mark. Thank you. The uh, so in the Minneapolis Bruins, of course. Are a, you, you end up there from Estevan. You go to uh, Minneapolis, also Bruins property. Some of yep. the players on that team, uh, Cesar Maniago, J.P. Parise, Terry Crisp, Larry Lund, a, a guest on our show recently, uh, Ted yep. Irvin, a, yep. uh, a talented crew in Minneapolis, and you know, yep. your player coach, Harry Sinden. Right, and right. Uh, what was the experience like uh, playing for the, in, up in Minneapolis for the, uh, for the Bruins in the Central League? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, I didn't initially, initially get invited to go to Minneapolis. I got invited to go to San Francisco. San Francisco was a farm team with the Boston Bruins at the time, mm -hmm. and they were in the Western Hockey League. And they wanted me to go there and try out. I go there and I try out. And I make the team, and then all of a sudden, uh, the Bruins, I guess, got more interest, and they wanted me to come to Minneapolis to play where all the young guys or all their young players were playing, you know, and. Mm -hmm. So, but initially, I wasn't invited. To, I was invited to San Francisco's camp, but not to uh, uh, Minneapolis Bruins camp. And then when they when they realized I made the I was making the team or made the team there in San Francisco, they said, "Well, we." And a guy named Harold Baldy Cotton, he never really cared for the guys in the West. I don't think that much. He liked <laughs> the guys in the East. So I wasn't one of his 
pets initially, but in a way, he uh, he finally uh, they finally got this all straight in the wind. They brought me to Minneapolis and go to Minneapolis. Harry Sinden, uh, uh Harry Sinden was very instrumental in my success as a player. He taught me a lot about about playing the game and how to play the game and realize realize positions on the ice and and uh, and uh, read the play. You got to read the play before it happens because the game is so quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to realize what's going on before it does happen. And uh, and Harry Sin was very instrumental in my success. He really helped me out a lot. And great coach and wonderful family. Uh, and I owe a lot to Harry Sin. Now, around that time, are you kind of learning what's going to make you successful long term? I mean, obviously, you were a hard hitting defenseman, a defensive defenseman. Are you basically, I guess, settling into that and in, in perfecting that part of your game and realizing that's going to be your ticket to the next level? Absolutely right. Uh, I remember one game distinctly. We played, we played the Omaha Knights, and they were a farm team of the Montreal Canadiens. And Scotty Bowman was a coach then, and uh, they had a guy named Noel Picard, biggest guy I ever seen as a hockey player. <laughs> as holy mackerel! So we got the series against him, and, and it got very physical. And everything else, and, and uh, they beat us the one year, but. When we moved the franchise from Oklahoma, uh, from Minneapolis to Oklahoma City, uh, we met them again, and uh, we won the championship that year. And I was very fortunate to play. You know, Harry was my coach, and uh, he, like I said, he helped me out tremendously, and I learned a lot from the game. And we won the championship that year in '65, and. Uh, and you, and uh, yeah, you're the all star, right? Your first team all star, and the team yeah. that we we noted yep. some of the players who played in Minneapolis. You also added, I mean, so many good young players. Skip Crake, I believe, yeah. was on that team. Glenn Sather yep. was on that that group. Yep. And what's the um, now before going to Oak City? However, I want to st- take one step back. You do get yep. a four game call up from the Boston yep. Bruins. And I was wondering. Yep what that experience was like and do you remember your first NHL game? Yeah, I do very vividly. I, you know what? Detroit was my favorite team as a young player growing up and uh, and the reason being is in 1953 uh, my mom said we're going to go visit our, our relatives in Bessemer, Michigan. <laughs> and so seven days later we on the train seven days later we finally get to Bessemer, Michigan. <laughs> and my uncle, my, my cousin said his name was Jimmy Rakovich. I remember this very distinctly. He says, Joey, you ever see a baseball game on TV? I says, no. He says, well, there's a baseball game tomorrow. The Detroit Tigers are playing the old St. Louis Browns. And so I watched that game, and that's how I became a Detroit fan. I became a Detroit fan, and uh, to this day, still am a Detroit fan, wow. except of the of the, the, the Red Wings. <laughs> uh, but in a way, uh, uh, you know, my very first game I got called up to play in Boston was against Detroit in Detroit. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and I remember we got beaten that game 4 nothing, And I met Gary Bergman after the game and Red Kelly. And Gary Bergman says, uh, I, you know, you did a nice job out there tonight. I, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said, you did a nice job out there. And uh, and then Red Kelly, I met Red and his wife and uh, uh, after the game. And Red Kelly was always my favorite player growing up uh, because he was a defense and I just loved the way he played, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, uh uh, very smart and uh, skate well. I couldn't skate as well as him, that's for sure. But uh, but he was my idol, Red Kelly. 
Right, and what a way to start playing against none other than Gordie Howe. Yeah, the, you're right. And uh, it's usually now every show that we do with players who I, and I, I knew Gordy well because I worked for the Hartford Whalers with him for six years, and yep. so I get to you know. But hear a lot of stories, and every story, I hear stories from every everybody who ever played against him about him kind of marking his territory, so to speak. Yeah, that's and letting, very true. Very letting well, you know, letting you know who he was, and uh, did you have that experience? Yeah, I did. You know, in nineteen, uh, my first game in nineteen sixty six. Uh, opening season, uh, we're playing Detroit in in in, in uh, Boston, and about the seven month mark, the first period, somebody comes in and it's it's really hard into the boards, or into the into the in the, into uh, the glass, and ah uh, oh my God, that hurt. <laughs> I, so I just my natural reaction was turn around and elbow the person, <laughs> so that's what I did. And I elbowed it, and uh, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe I elbowed him. <laughs> so I go back to the bench and Orr says, oh, you're going to pay for this eventually. <laughs> and uh, and we were fighting position the second period in front of our net, and he got me with a stick right on my nose and broke my nose. And, oh, my God, it was so painful. And he said to me, he says, welcome to the league, Rook. <laughs> and I was, I was one of four rookies that broke in that. He was Ed Van Nip, myself, Mike Walton, and... Uh, and uh, uh, or, or, right? And he says, "Welcome to the league, Rook." Oh wow. my God! <laughs> but I got even with him in 1972. I got three of his ribs. I broke three <laughs> of his ribs. He landed, you know, we were fighting position in front of the net, and uh, and he fell down on, uh, on me, and my skate got him right in the ribs, and and uh, it cracked through his ribs. Well, I guess it was good timing because then he retired. Yeah, he retired uh, before, shortly after, I think. Yeah, before going back yep. to the uh, to WHA. But you mentioned that game against Detroit. It's also a Famous game in hockey annals, as it is the first game ever for Bruins defenseman Bobby Orr, yep. uh, a player that you uh, ruined with yep. that year. So yep. I wanted to get two impressions from you. Number one, Bobby Orr as a young hockey player, and number two, just as the, the type of person was he was at a young age. Yeah. You spent a lot of time with him as you were roommates, and you know yeah. a lot of fans may not know this as well. He was also uh, uh, best man of your wedding too. Yeah. So, wedding he was yes well you know when when i met him in 65 i saw him maybe 140 pounds and i said well geez how can hell how the hell can he be a player he's not big enough mm -hmm. so but he was very skilled very skilled at the time and and uh, and he bought a rowing machine and he went home and rode rode for six months you know, two, three hours a day, I think five days a week for six months, and he put on 55 pounds of muscle. <laughs> so he comes to training camp the next year, he's 190 pounds and all muscle. I said, holy, and he's bull-legged <laughs> too, you know, so he had great right. balance. It's hard to knock off the puck and, and hard to knock down because of his balance. But uh, but he revolutionized the game, uh, game of hockey as far as the defenseman goes. You know, I think that, uh, you know, Red Kelly was one that scored 20 goals one year as a defenseman, but then Orr came in, and my God, he changed the whole game. And I remember having a chance to talk to Paul Coffey when he came to the Flyers, and Paul Coffey says, he says, I used to watch every Boston game just to watch or or the way he played and everything else, and I try to emulate my game after him. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and But, you know, the one thing I accomplished before Bobby did, I got my very first goal on national television in Montreal, against Gump Worsley my first year 
and I went on the next night we went back home in 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 uh in Boston and, and Orr scored our only goal. We got beat again two to one. Mm-hmm. But he went on to score about eight hundred goals and I got about four. <laughs> <laughs> right. But well, you know, getting your first yeah. one against Gump Worsley, Hockey Hall of Famer, of course, in, in yeah. Montreal, but that's the no small thing. You know what? And Mark and I'm sorry for interrupting, but you know uh, where I'm from in British Columbia, they had television but can it was canned television. So they got a chance to see the goal a week later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, oh, that's, um, see, I did not know that uh, piece of trivia, but I will say this, uh, you know, getting a chance to play in a six-team National Hockey League, you know, I had this conversation with somebody recently. Uh, you know, basically you're looking at 24 defensemen who are playing in the entire league. Six goalies are basically playing, six, seven goalies. Um, now, just give you know the fans an idea of what the six-team league was like. The 66-67 Boston Bruins had Hall of Famers Bobby Orr and John Busick, uh, Jerry Cheevers, uh, Bernie yep. Perrant uh, for the beginning of the season, yep. um, Johnny McKenzie, Ed Westfall, really good group, and that team won yeah. 17 out of 70 games. They give you a little indication um, of the talent level in a six-team NHL. You're able to do it as a rookie. It has to be a source of pride to... Uh, do something that so few were were able to do. It's a lot of great players, as you know, never never uh, made it to that level. Yeah, there were a lot of good players in the American League uh, uh, that could have played in the National League, but you know, like especially for Montreal, Montreal had to they you know they had I think they had the Quebec cases at the time. They were just loaded with players and good players. Leon Rochford could have played. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he did get a chance eventually, but there were so many good players. In the American League, and, and not only the American League, the Central League that never really got an opportunity because of, because of the nature of the game. There's only 96 players in the league at the time, and uh, each team had I think 16 players, and uh, and uh, so um, I was, you know, it, it really was very gratifying for myself to make the six-team league and play for Boston. I remember, I remember us going into. We started out pretty strong, and then Orr got hurt, and. Uh, um, he, we were we were playing a game in Detroit, and Orr was coming down. Uh, you know, he held Ben for leather, and Marcel Pronto will come across and hit him with a hip check and knock him way up in the air and everything else. And, and uh, the poor guy, that that's when he started his injuries, and he got his knee. I think one of his knees was hurting, so he's gone for five or six weeks. And but uh, I remember one time going to New York, and we were really doing well in the league. And half M's was the general manager at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had a line of of, uh, of uh, Wayne Conley, Ronnie Shock, and Ron Murphy, and that was a good line for us. And, and Hap Ems was the general manager. And this was in in New York. He says, "If this line is going to lead us to the promised land, we're in trouble." <laughs> <laughs> the confidence builder. So, yeah, so we went right down the hill from there. <laughs> uh, we went right down the drain. So oh my for, God! Uh, we fought the Rangers for last place uh, in the league that year for fifth and sixth. Right. Oh boy! Yeah, but, but I'll s- never get him saying that. If this <laughs> line is going to lead us, we're in trouble. <laughs> well, oh boy! Won't yeah. be around uh, with Norman Vincent Peale's motivational, uh, positive thinking, uh, yeah. uh, sp- speeches there. But the um, so you can kind of see the Bruins though building oh, yeah. Derek Sanderson, Bill Goldsworthy, the goaltenders we talked about, you kind of see where things are kind of going in a very much an upward trajectory. However, 
Uh, fate would intervene as the NHL doubles in size the following year, uh, each team protecting just 10 players. And you are selected in the expansion draft by the brand new Philadelphia Flyers. I was curious how you heard about that. Oh, would, gee. And what was your reaction? Was it something was... Well, I was like shocked, first of all. I didn't know I was available. And secondly, I'm, uh, you know, when you, you, you play in the National League at, at that time, you only make it, I was only making $7,500 a year. So mm-hmm. I had to do some work in the summer then. So I was flagging traffic down in, Bert- in northern BC. And a guy, this is about 10 after 7 in the morning. And he says, I just heard your name in radio. I said, oh, yeah, what did you hear? He says, well, I hear you got drafted by Philadelphia. He says, what? Philadelphia? Where the hell is Philadelphia? <laughs> and I said, I didn't know anything about Philadelphia. And, and I was very upset. Uh, uh, and uh, so I asked uh, my boss if I take the rest of the day off. This is at 10.15 or 7.15 in the morning. <laughs> so I did take the rest of the day off, and I went and got totally inebriated with about four or five of my friends. And, <laughs> and next morning, I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't feel good, so I phoned my boss to ask if I have another day off. And he wasn't very happy about it, but uh, <laughs> he said fine. And, and uh, But initially, I was upset, and I got a phone call from Harry Sinden and Bobby Orr and telling me they, they never thought I'd be the first player taken. Uh, I mean, Bernie Bernie was a goalie taken, but uh, they never thought I'd be the first player taken. There are other players that are available. And the thing, funny thing is I beat out I beat out Gary Smith, uh, uh, Gary Doak, and, and, and uh, Dallas Smith for a job the year before. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would be protected, but they never thought, they didn't protect me, and they never thought I'd be gone. But And then they tried to get me back, but Philadelphia wanted too much. I don't know what they wanted, but they wanted too much, they said. So they said, okay, fine. So that was it, but... Uh, that's how I found out. <laughs> wow. So things don't start out that well for you because uh, of the reasons you stated. Now, another key thing here, and this is where you're so unique in history, is you're in Philadelphia in year one. Now, today, it's a hotbed. The whole Delaware Valley, the youth hockey, the interest is off the charts. However, wasn't necessarily the case uh, back in 1967. Uh, what was it like when you first got there, and uh, did you kind of say to yourself, "What have I got myself into here?" Yeah, you know what? Uh, you know what? There were two rinks to play hockey or skate in in Philadelphia at the time, and one was over in Jersey, and that was our practice facility in Jersey, Cherry Hill Arena, and then there was one in Wissahickon. Wissahickon, it's a suburban area of Philadelphia, but there were another. There were there were other areas to skate, and so um, I remember. Uh, James Tate was the mayor of Philadelphia at the time. We had training camp up in Quebec City, and uh, then we came down to Philly, and uh, he wanted to have a parade for us down Broad Street to welcome the city. So we marched, start marching down Broad Street, and there were more people in the parade. They were watching it. <laughs> and I said, holy God, we're not going to be here very long. But Mr. Snyder, uh, bless his soul, he stuck it out, and my God, uh, we made such an impact in this area uh, I remember seven years later when we won the Stanley Cup, and, and Rizzo, Frank Rizzo was the mayor at the time, and uh, and that a, we had a big parade, you know, two million people, so mm-hmm. so so we went down to Chambers, and and uh, I remember I got up and says, I says, where the hell was the mayor seven years ago? Because the mayor's never showed up for our parade, right? Ninety six never showed up for the parade. So seven years later, we won the cup. I, I says, where the hell was the mayor seven years ago who won the cup? And, and Frank Rizzo said, oh, I wasn't the mayor, so don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, boy, you know, seven years, as you noted, not really a long time for an expansion team. And, of course, there are some uh, trials and tribulations leading up to that. And 
you know, the team had some fits and starts. It was, it was a solid team coached by Keith Allen, of course, and yep. uh, eventually by Vic Stasiak. And you had some some tough losses. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about Brandy Perron in, in, in a moment, but yeah, Dougie yep. Favell was, was your main goaltender there in the early 70s. Good yep. NHL goaltender. Had the penchant, however, of maybe giving up the big goal at the wrong time or the yeah. oddball goal. Uh, that certainly came to play, I believe, in 71 with Jerry Meehan flipping. Four seconds oh, left. You God, missed, you missed the playoffs. Um, but talk about those years leading up. And I, I think specifically, and I don't even remember the year, it might have been the 68 playoffs. You mentioned Noel Picard earlier and yep. the Plager brothers. Yep. And the yep. Blues maybe imposing their will physically on the Flyers and Ed yep. Snyder promising that that would be the last time that would happen to a Flyers team. Can you recall that? that? Absolutely right. I remember uh, very distinctly we had a big brawl against St. Louis in our building and Noel Picard came up beside Claude Pepsi LaForge and hit him, in, hit him in the side here and knocked 13 teeth out. He hit him so hard he knocked 13 of his teeth out. Wow. And uh, and they beat us. I remember they beat us in the seventh game uh, in Philadelphia. Here they they got an open net. They beat us three to one with an open net. Red Berenson did, but but I remember him distinctly saying, "This will never happen to a Flyers game again, a uh, Flyers team again." He says, "We're not going to be intimidated by anybody anymore." And he kept to his word because he instructed Keith Allen, who was the general manager, became the general manager, and and uh, he instructed them that. We're not going to be pushed around anymore, and I want players that are tough as well as play. So they decided to go guy draft a guy named Bob Kelly. Uh, he had the quickest fist in hockey. I thought he'd get 30 punches into a guy's one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, heavy-hitting Dave Schultz, who uh, would get us shots in there, too. And then we had Ed Van Imp, and uh, uh, we had Barry Ashby, and then we traded for Moose DuPont. Uh, I remember we played St. Louis in our building in 72, I think it was, and... Uh, we were playing St. Louis, and they made, we made a trade before the game. So Brent Hughes went to St. Louis, and 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 Moose came to us. Wow! And <laughs> we're getting in the, getting. He was getting dressed for the game, and uh, 45 minutes earlier he was a St. Louis Blues, and then shortly after he <laughs> became a Flyer, and uh, they played against one another that night. Wow. <laughs> that's the way it was then. But uh, yeah, Mr. Snyder vowed this would never happen, and that's that's. The the Brostry Bullies never got their name till 1972 by a guy named Jack Chevalier who just passed away here recently. Right, he was a you're reporter right. Mm-hmm. For the for the Bulletin here, and he lived in uh, he lived in Wilmington, Delaware. But uh, he he uh, he gave he gave the Brostry Bullies a name. It's funny, it's an iconic name, and uh, it really is in all the sports. I have people talk to me, and and not not only in America but foreign countries. I've talked to people. They talk about well, you were on the Broad Street Bullies, says yes, and this was in Russia three years ago. I got approached by people after a game. We played a game <laughs> in Red Square, and were you on the Broad Street Bullies, Tim? I said yes, I was. So uh, it was an iconic name, and it's funny how that name sticks with you. But about six years ago, I was flying from Toronto to Vancouver to go up to uh, have a golf tournament up there in my hometown, and. Uh, so I sit down on the plane in Toronto, and this guy sits next to me, and we start talking. I detected an accent, and uh, and I says, "Are you are you British?" And he says, "No, I'm a Nazi." I says, "Oh, okay." So we're sitting there drinking beers, and and then he asked me, "Well, what do you do?" I says, "Oh, I live in Philadelphia, but I'm a Canadian." Well, why do you live in Philadelphia? I says, "Well, I used to play hockey." He said, "You played hockey?" I says, "Yeah." He says, "Well, who'd you play for?" I say, "Well, I played for the Flyers." He says. You played for the Flyers? 
were you one of those guys called the Broad Street Bullies? This guy had never seen a hockey game in his life. <laughs> right. I says, yes, I, yes, I was. He says, I just watched that HBO special. In fact, I watched it twice. I enjoyed it so much. And there was a guy talking about his father. I said, well, that was my, that's the guy I was talking. I was talking about my father who, who showed up in Philadelphia in 74, unbeknownst that to my brother and that he was coming down and he showed up with uh, overalls on, long woolen underwear, about 95 degrees out, <laughs> and he had cow shit all over his <laughs> So after the game, we win the, we win the game, and he comes in the dressing room, and I said, oh, Dad, you smell, my God almighty. <laughs> so Dad takes all his clothes off and runs in the shower and has a shower with the players. <laughs> that's how crazy it was. But that's that the way our team was. We were a crazy crew. <laughs> that's for sure. But in order to accomplish what you, you did the, the, uh, in 1969, uh, the team drafts Bobby Clark, who's yep. you've talked about yep. some of the, the toughness on the team that is being accumulated. The yep. perfect player to draft, the perfect time to have him. Uh, talk a little bit about young Bobby Clark and uh, the leadership uh, that he showed at a young age. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, first of all, uh, I didn't know much about him, but I remember one day we had training camp, like I say, in Quebec City, and we're at a restaurant uh, having breakfast after practice, and I'm sitting with Wayne Hillman, Larry Hillman, and myself, but I can't recall whether four of us, uh, and, and Clarkie. And we're sitting there eating. All of a sudden, he had a fainting spell, and I didn't know what the hell was going on, so we went and got, we went and got some help rather quickly. I didn't know he was a diabetic. And I guess training camp, he'd worked so hard, which he always was a hard worker, but I guess it wore him down, and, mm -hmm. and he had a kind of a, a little spell there. But anyway, uh, I realized at that time that he was going to be a leader just the way he was, you know. And, and, uh, and you know what, the, the saying, uh, saying, saying for or is or goes, the Bruins go, uh, the saying certainly uh, is true of the Flyers. As Clark goes, the Flyers go, and 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 uh, Clarky being a diabetic and seeing what he had to do every day to keep himself strong and 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 uh, 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 and good for, for for good competition, you could just see that mm -hmm. he was a leader, and and uh, it was you know I mean we would have never gone any place if it wasn't for Bob Clark. Uh, we were a team that was languishing, and when he came into our organization, he just made a big big difference for our team. And then of course you know we had. Bernie, Bernie was, uh, you know, Bernie was an exceptional goalie, uh, especially the first year we won the cup. We would have never won the cup if it wasn't for uh, for uh, Bernie Perrant. The second year, I think we were good enough to beat anybody. We just we were kind of cocky, and and I remember our second year, uh, uh, we had 23 games, we had 17 or less shots for our goalies. So our goalies didn't get a lot of work in a lot of the games. Right. And uh, but but Clark, uh, he was an exceptional leader really an exceptional person. He didn't say a lot uh, off the ice, but on the ice, you know, he let his action speak for itself. really did. Right. He was somebody, I was a Bruins fan, but hard not to admire. First of all, it was hard not to like the, I, I know it sounds, uh, people in Boston probably wouldn't agree with me, but hard yeah. not to love that Flyers team where it was so exciting. And when you guys went on the road, uh, it was a big deal. I used to go down. My 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 a friend of mine's father was a bellhop at the Sheraton Hotel in uh, Boston. So when you guys yep. were in the in the road on the road, and it would just be like more in the, in the latter seventies. But regardless, same basic group. Uh, and you yep. guys would come in, but always go down to the hotel and you know get the autograph. But to me, you guys were like rock stars. Um, oh, you know, it, it, really? go, that's that nice. Jesus God, that's great work. But, really? go, but going into oh, these boy. towns, it was a big deal. Going to these cities, like the Flyers yeah. coming to town, and people could say whatever they. 
want, but you guys sold yeah. a lot of tickets, not only in Philadelphia, but on the road as well. Oh, did we ever. You know what? Uh, I remember, you know, going to L.A., you know, and going to a lot of buildings. They had, they had five, maybe eight, 9,000 people at a game. When the flyer showed up, every ticket was sold. Every ticket was sold. I can remember going to L.A., and all, all of Hollywood show up to see the Flyers play. Mm -hmm. I met so many guys that are in the movie business, you know, like Lauren Green was a guy from Winnipeg, Manitoba. I didn't know he was. And a Bonanza, a Bonanza guy, you know, and I met him. Yeah. I met so many, many uh, people that, are, that were in the movie business just because of the, the Broad Street Bullies. You're absolutely right. I remember one time distinctly we're in L.A., and I get the uh, L.A. Times, and I... Uh, I read the front page. There was a headline on the front page. The animals are here. Make sure you lock your doors. And I said, what the hell are they talking about? And they're referring to the flyers of Broad Street Bullies. I said, oh, my God almighty. I said, my God, that is funny. But that's the, way we, that's, that's the impact we had on, uh, on the league. We, every game, we were not well-liked, but every game was sold out because people knew they were going to get their money's worth in the games that we played. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to go back to that in one second, but the yeah, I know the key draft choice of the team. You know, nine I believe nine years your junior, uh, your brother Jimmy probably used yep. to, to tag along when yep. you were a kid. Had to be yep. a thrill for you when he gets drafted uh, by the Flyers in '72, I believe, uh, yep. round three. And yep. uh, what was your reaction on having him become part of the Flyers family? That's first of all, it's 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 rare to have two brothers who can play in the NHL, and now you're on the same team. It had to be a great uh, experience. Yeah. Well, it was because the, you know uh, I knew the draft was on. I was at a wedding in uh, in Trail, British Columbia, and at that time there was a strike. There was a strike on, or something. Something. There's something. I think there was a. I don't know. There was a, some kind of a strike on in Canada. And I didn't know until two days later that we got that we, that we got my brother, and uh, Keith Allen finally got a hold of me and told me. I said I had no idea. My brother didn't get a hold of me. He couldn't get a hold of me. Wow. He didn't know where I was. I was living in Kamloops at the time because my wife was taking nurses training, and so I didn't know that we had drafted him until you know, I guess maybe a day or two days later. But uh, to to have brothers play uh, play. Uh, together and win Stanley Cups together. Uh, well, I think we were the fourth brother combination ever to win a Stanley Cup from a little town in, in northern British Columbia. Right. And now there have been a, there being a bunch more, obviously, but uh, we were the fourth brother combination. Uh, uh, the Richards, obviously, Bun Cooks, the Smiths, I think, in the 40s, somebody said. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this until somebody informed me about this. Uh, and I thought that was pretty... Uh, pretty unique that to have an opportunity to play with my brother secondly and then of course win the ultimate the ultimate goal in your life is to win the to win the Stanley Cup or the sport you know and uh, and I remember I told my brother how to handle his negotiation as far as the contract goes so I phoned Keith and, and Keith and I are talking and 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 uh, Jimmy and I informed uh, Keith that I was going to represent Jimmy uh, to save him some money <laughs> uh, <laughs> instead of paying lawyer fees so I got him a deal for $35,000 a year, and hell, I wasn't making that much. <laughs> right. So I got him a better deal for himself than I did for myself, but my contract was up that following year, and so then I, I got above him again. But um, until then, he was making more money than I was, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good brother. He was getting, 30, getting 35000 that first year, yeah. Well, good, yeah. good brother and a good agent at the same time. Yeah. Here, Joe. <laughs> yeah. 
Joe, you had uh, yeah. we had talked earlier about some of the coaches, you know, Keith and uh, Alan and Vic Stasek, but of course Fred Shiro comes on the scene, and yeah. I'm wondering at that point you got you got Bobby Clark, you make some acquisitions, Rick McLeish, you've got the toughness, uh, yeah. but Fred Shiro, he's the guy who you know, kind of pulls it all together, and I. I'm wondering, yeah. uh, he was always such a mystery to me uh, yeah. as, as a fan. But what, and this is a loaded question, you could go on and on, but uh, but what did Fred Shearer bring to the Flyers that uh, took this team to the next level? Stability. Stability. And and believing in ourselves. You know, whenever we had a problem with management, uh, if a player had a, a problem, he would always side in with a player. He would take the player, he would take the... the, the uh, Whatever that was to the management, tell them this is the way it's got to be. If we want to, we got to be a team here, and you've got to support the players more so than the management. And Freddie always, always, always supported the players, and we realized that. And uh, he did whatever he possibly could to keep the players happy, and of course the wives happy. If you don't keep the wives happy, <laughs> then it's not going to be a happy household at home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and Freddie gave us a system too. Uh, we would spend forty-five. 40, 45 minutes during a practice, and 30 minutes was spending, spent coming out of our own zone. We'd have four set plays, and that was it. And I don't want to make, I don't want to have a lot of confusion. We're going to do four set plays. So every, pretty well every day, we do the same damn thing as far as coming out of our own zone. Mm-hmm. And it got to be very redundant. And you know what? We realized, you know what? Uh, if we're going to be successful, we have to do this. Because we weren't as talented as a lot of teams. Montreal is a very talented team, obviously the Bruins. But there were a lot of very good teams in the league, and, and we weren't as talented. But we, we, he always just used to always say to us, the least amount of time we're going to spend in our own zone, the better off we're going to be. Right. And whatever the offense takes, we'll, we'll just, whatever the offense gives us, we'll take. And so that's why we spend a lot of time in our own zone. And we used to always take the angles, give them the angle shots. We take the middle. Freddie used to always say we got to control six areas of the rink. We've got to control the four corners and the two net areas. If we control those areas, we're going to be successful. So that's the way we built our built our team and, and we managed our team that way and give them angle shots. And, of course, Bernie in the nets. Uh, Bernie was a great goaltender as far as angles go, and he learned that from Jacques Plot. Right. I know Bernie used to bring the ropes out in the ice there, and, and, uh, and, and uh, we'd be shooting uh, in the ropes and there'd be an angle there, and he would take the angle away every time, and that's how he learned. Wow. That's how he learned. And he got that from Jacques Plot. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. Of, of, of Bernie Pranjo, you had maybe the most unique um, experience with Bernie in the sense, well, you were there from an original flyer, you're still there in the area, but you saw him in the Bruins organization, his first time around the Flyers organization. Then, of course... Yeah. He uh, jumps to the World Hockey Association. Uh, Keith Allen makes the deal of the century and gets uh, his rights from Toronto. And he comes back. And I was curious, how did he, what was the transformation you saw in Bernie Perron from those early days in the Bruins organization and Flyers to being, you know, one of the top one or two goaltenders in hockey in the mid-70s? Yeah, well, uh, you know what? I think that he grew up, I think once he got traded from Philadelphia or he went to the World Hockey League, I think he kind of grew up and and, uh, realized that... uh, Life was not a bowl of cherries, and I think that he realized that he had to, you know, work work at his profession, which he did for the most of the time. Uh, but there was no, there there wasn't a better angle goalie in the league, uh, 
as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some a lot of good goalies, but Bernie played his angle so well, and he could control the rebounds a lot, which was important for defense. And uh, Bernie could place a puck. When there was a shot coming towards net, he could place a puck where he wanted to uh, at an angle. And he learned that again from Jacques Plot. Mm-hmm. But uh, we would have never won our first Stanley Cup if it wasn't for Bernie. Bernie made... He made some saves. I remember. I remember we lost the first game in Boston in '74, and three oh. two. I remember Orr shot the puck a, off my foot. This is at '74. The bad memory of that game too. However, for me, <laughs> I will tell you, I, yeah. I I looked at the Bruins that year and I I felt they were invincible, especially at home, yep. especially against the Flyers at home. <laughs> right. And that killer, that that scene of Bobby Clark with his hands up in the air yeah. and or yeah. on the ice, and oh, it was brutal. And it seems like. You guys had so much confidence in that final series. Well, it's funny you say that because I tell you what. We, okay, so we the, the Boston beach. I think they beat Chicago four straight. They had about eight or nine day layoff, and uh, and we were playing the Rangers. Really, a, really, a, really a tough series. It was very physical, and we beat them on Sunday afternoon, four to three in Philadelphia. Then we had to go to Boston Monday to, to open the series Tuesday. So we get to Boston, and I pick up the Boston Globe and I see this highlight. In the paper, it says, we just beat a better team to get the finals that we're going to play for the final of the Stanley Cup. I says, who in the hell made that statement? So I looked, I read the article, it was Freddie Shiro. Oh. I said, Freddie, how in the hell can you say something like that? He says, Joe, we haven't beaten them in seven years. We haven't beaten them in seven years. We're not going to show any respect to the Boston Bruins. We're going to hit them every chance we get. And what we're going to do, we're going to shoot the puck in Orr's corner, and the buildings are warm. We're going to make him exert energy. Every time he gets the puck, we're going to get in his way, hit him get in the way, make them exert some energy because the buildings, like I said, they were very warm. Oh, yeah. And and the first three games, Orr dominated. The last three games, I think he was kind of worn out because he's playing 35 to 40 minutes a game. And when you're in a warm buildings, it, it takes a lot out of you. But that's what, Freddie, that's what Freddie did because, you know, the unwritten rule was never let Orr carry the puck, never never give him the puck because once he gets going, you, you can't stop him. Right. But Freddie says, well, we're going to get on him. Every time we shoot it in, we're going to go right after him right away and make his some energy. And, and you know, it, it kind of helped us, you know, and uh, it gave us some confidence. You know when we got confidence was the first game when we got beat 3-2 in Boston? And it was 3-2 match, and they beat us. But, you know, we, we thought then that we had a chance. I think before that game, I don't think, I think a lot of us thought, well, we don't know if we have a chance or not. But, you know, after the first game. And then the, the next game, DuPont scores. DuPont scores with, we pull our goalie, and DuPont scores. And, and uh, McLeish makes a pass out to the corner there, and out to DuPont, he scores. And, and then we go into overtime, and Clark, he scores. And then we really knew that we had a chance. Yeah, it was uh, a series that brought uh, this kid in Worcester, Massachusetts, to tears in the end. I was Jesus. so upset. I remember uh, I, I took my street hockey stick and ball, went out to my driveway, and just started slamming pucks against the, the fence for about an hour and a half. I could not believe it. But nonetheless, uh, you, yeah. uh, now, Joe, I know we're you know, you, going a little into overtime here. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. The 73-74 yeah. is also a year that you played in your first NHL All-Star game. I was wondering yeah. what that experience was like. It's got to feel, you know, I mean, obviously the team is coming together, but just to have that individual um, yeah. recognition. You know, to... just being rewarded. I felt I got rewarded for that, you know. It was so nice to, to be recognized. And I think Billy Billy Ray was our coach. 
And I think that the coach had had a pick the players. I don't know how that how it went then, but you know, I, I remember him being the coach, and I was talking to him and everything else, and and I was so so grateful to be there and get a chance to play against the best. And and I believe we won that game. Did we win that game in Chicago? Wasn't it Chicago? That was Chicago. I, I don't remember. Game. Yeah, I don't remember the. I think we won results. four to three or something like that. You know, and uh, and then I had a chance. The second one I made in '76. 77, we went to Vancouver, and of course, you know, being from British Columbia, oh, and had all right. these people come down from Smithers and, and Kamloops, and, uh, you know, where I was from, and they were trying to get tickets, and I was fortunate to get about 40 or 50 tickets, and my brother and brother and I played in that, uh, that uh, game, mm-hmm. and uh, so, you know what, it was so rewarding to get a chance to play amongst, first of all, amongst your peers, and, and uh, we had six guys, I think, went to the, the Stanley Cup, or not the Stanley but to the All-Star game in, in Vancouver that year, and uh, so yeah, it I, was very nice to see a lot of my friends. Really yeah, I had totally that. forgotten that uh, you were up in Vancouver that game. That's, uh, fans are learning a lot of new information here, so I appreciate that. And, yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to, a lot of fans are younger fans, we've got a, a lot of younger fans who listen, is yeah. one player who... Um, of course, is is recognized every year, but I want you to tell us a little bit about a guy who had some real hard luck, and he missed the Stanley Cup Finals with an eye injury against New York Rangers, and uh, yeah. later, um, yeah. you know, had leukemia and passed away in 1976. Oh. Defenseman Barry Ashby, uh, tell Boy. us a little bit about Barry. Um, what was he like? Well, he was a man's man, man. He was a man's man. He was a tough son of a gun, and he he had he had he had a constant neck injury for for maybe two or three years, and used to wear this toilet seat around his neck, you know, to try to <laughs> reinforce it. I mean, a toilet seat sounds crazy, but that's what it was. That's what we called it. But uh, he, was a, he was a man's man, really a, a great leader and a very quiet leader. Didn't say a lot, but when he said something, it made a lot of sense. And, and he played tough, and uh, an unfortunate thing, he didn't last very long. And uh, I'll never forget, we, went to, we were in the playoffs. We were starting the playoffs in 76 against Toronto. And we find out uh, just before the first game in Philadelphia, we had a morning skate, and uh, and Fred Shiro comes in and talks to us. He says, we have to make an announcement. And Barry made the announcement and, and, and the problem he had, and, uh, and and we were all in shock. So we, we go out and play Toronto. We lose the first two games in Philadelphia against Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then we went on to win the next four, but uh, we were in shock. And uh, obviously for 36 years old, and I remember the funeral was in Toronto, and uh, it was very hard to take. Uh, I, I I remember being in the church there. Christ, I was you know I mean I wasn't the only guy. There was a bunch of guys that had tears in their eyes and were crying. Mm-hmm. And for a guy being 36 years old and this happening to him, it was devastating to all of us. And, and it's funny I still see his wife around today. Her, you know, oh, good. Yeah. And I don't think she's ever went out to date ever since that happened. Wow. She's a beautiful lady, a nice lady. I see her at the games once in a while. She's just a, just, but Barry was a man's man, man. He was, <laughs> he was a tough guy and, and because he had played in American League for a number of years, you know, and, uh, the Hershey Bears. And so he knew what it was all about. And, uh, but he didn't say a lot, but what he did, he was one of our assistant captains there for a while. And, uh, uh, it was very difficult for all of us, and he. So anyway, he becomes to the month of the day that he that he informed us that he was he passed away. 
we were in the playoffs and he passed away. Holy God. So we had to go to Toronto for the funeral and oh my God. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah, it certainly crazy was a uh, sort of a sad time for the hockey world and the Flyers oh. family and the Flyers yeah. family emphasized that because it is and we're going to get to that when we close but the I wanted to ask you about I asked some players when we have them on here who played in that generation yeah. what was it like getting in your team bus you get off the flight you get in the team bus and you're uh, driving to the spectrum in the 1970s very oh. uncomfortable and I I, I guess <laughs> my, my question for you is could you sense that teams kind of maybe out of the yeah. game before it even began from the int- yep. intimidation factor you know what I knew Bobby Nystrom as a young boy he grew up in Kamloops British Columbia and and I remember Bobby, Bobby, they'd be rolling down, Bobby, I talked to Bobby, and they'd be rolling down 95, uh, getting the Walt Whitman Bridge, and they look off to the left in a the distance, they could see the spectrum, all of a sudden the bus, the bus is very quiet, because they knew they were going to war. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's not the only guy, I heard a lot of guys say that, uh, they were very intimidated, and a lot of guys got the Philadelphia flu, players would say this and that, and, uh. And so you know that was that was to our benefit. That was to our benefit because you know they were they were intimidated before the game started. But the Islanders had a big team themselves, so they we didn't really intimidate them. But we had some battles against them, and we had a lot of battles against other teams. Boston was a big team; they were tough. Montreal was a fast team; uh, we couldn't catch them. Uh, uh, but uh, and you know other teams. There was a few other teams, but but. Uh, we live by the sword and die by the sword. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was our motto, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. We you know, had... And if we're going to lose a game, we're going to lose a game on, on, on our accordance, not, not somebody else. Not somebody else is going to dictate to us, oh, we're going to lose a game. So we did whatever we could to, you know, form, uh, you know, aggressive, being aggressive was a form of intimidation. And, and uh, we try to do that. Well, kind of uh, your success kind of ushered in that uh, era of, in that era, there were a lot of, uh, quote, goon players. But the thing about the Flyers, guys like yep. Bob Kelly, Moose DuPont, you mentioned, even Dave yep. Schultz had a 20-goal year. Yeah, um, right. You know, these right. guys could play. So it was almost like it was a collection of guys with a mentality. And guys like yourself and Gary Dornhofer, yep. who played a physical game, it was almost yep. like a collection. But you didn't really have, like, a pure, like, goon-type player. The guy, the guys all had a function on the ice yeah well we were you know we were never given any credit we were never given any credit i still hear it today still hear it today like i, I was with the pierre uh uh, uh oh pierre i forget you know uh, does uh uh mcguire he, he does he does uh oh, does television now for the nhl oh pierre mcguire uh, pierre mcguire yeah i was with pierre mcguire this this past weekend up at colgate university and we were talking about the, the the teams in the 70s, and he says, oh, my God, he says, I heard so many stories about you guys. I, I, I saw you guys play. I didn't know much about you, but I hear so many great stories. And, and and you guys weren't given a lot of credit for the type of team you had, even though you played very aggressive. You had some talented players. We did. We had McLeish. You know, McLeish, I think McLeish is one of the most skilled players the Flyers ever had. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Bob Clark and, 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 and Billy Barber, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lonsbury, uh, but we knew that we had to control certain areas of the rink in order to be successful. And it wasn't that we were as talented as the other teams, but we knew that we could compensate in other ways, and that that meant playing very aggressive, playing good position too. We played a lot of good position, and uh, that that all came from Freddie. 
Right, and that was never more evident uh, than 1976, which is the peak of that era for the Flyers, a game that if you didn't like the Flyers, you loved them that day, that Sunday afternoon, uh, playing against the uh, the Soviet yeah. Red Army team. And I, I, that was one of the biggest games of my life as a fan. I was glued to it because it was such a, yeah. a, a battle. Now, the Red Army team had come in, had not lost in this tour of theirs, I think seven or eight games at that point, a uh, famous yeah. tie against the uh, Montreal Canadiens. But you guys... And we talked about the intimidation factor. You, I think you all yep. shot him something like 48 to 19. Yeah, uh, 40, and, 49 to 13. Wow. wow. I remember uh, that. Joe hey, Watson scores a goal in that game. They, they knew they were in trouble when I scored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny you say that because, you know, I remember, I remember we, were, we were in Toronto on a Thursday night. That's the only time I ever heard of all of Canada. You must beat the Russian hockey team. Must, I remember going out and getting on our bus after the game and people were saying, you must beat the Russians. You have to beat the Russians. You have to uphold prestige of hockey in North America. And I remember Clarence Campbell come in the dressing room before the game and, and told us. And Clarence didn't. Clarence was very reluctant to come and present us the Stanley Cup when we won it in those years. And right. So we told him to get the hell out of here because we we're going to win it for ourselves, never mind the National Hockey League. And Lloyd Gilmore was a referee, and Lloyd Gilmore came in before the game and says, boys, we're going to let you play your game. And uh, that's all we had to hear. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day before we had a banquet at the Spectrum and the old Blue Line Club, and they started introducing the Russians, and then they started introducing the Flyers, and they come to number eight. And when they come to number eight, all of a sudden the Russians were looking around to trying to find out where this guy was. So <laughs> <laughs> we knew then they were nervous. <laughs> right. Well, I used to be nervous but, just watching you guys. Yeah, uh, but in a way, so in a way, the game starts, uh, they get the puck, and they make about 30 passes. We stood there and watched them, and Freddie, Freddie had, before, prior to the game, he said, boys, this is, they have the Iron Curtain in Russia. We're going to show them the Iron Curtain in North America. I want my defense up at center ice. I want my wings to fall back, and I want our defense to try to take the, the puck carrier out, and uh, hopefully there'll be some loose pucks, and our wings will be able to pick the puck and go, after, go at them where they're standing still, and hopefully uh, we'll get some... Uh, get some goals out of it and basically we played that way the whole game and, and we were very successful like like I said if Kretschak hadn't played well we would have beat them 10 to 1 man he was incredible the save he made and I wasn't a goal scorer but I have to sneak up and score a shorthanded goal <laughs> and coach Cheryl comes in the dressing room and he said uh, you know he congratulated us we won the game and he says Joe, by scoring that shorthanded goal, you're going to set the Russian program back 30 years. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I was just in Russia here three years ago, and we played in Red Square. And I was the only guy that played in that game that uh, uh, that played in Russia here three years ago. So I was interviewed a lot by uh, by Russian television over there about about the 76 game, and I talked to the people that were, that were uh, doing the interview. I said, well, you weren't even around. And then and they said, no, Mr. Watson, it's grained in our society. What the Broad Street bullies did to our Soviet Red Army team was embarrassing, wow. and we've never forgot that. Imagine saying that. This was 40 years ago. Yeah, incredible. 40 years ago. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, uh, got a little story here. Gene Hart, being the world traveler he is, he, uh, he goes to Russia here in 1996, mm-hmm. and he's in Moscow for uh, three or four days, then he goes to Siberia. And he gets to Siberia, and uh, he sees these guys in balls and chains. So he goes to the guard, and he says, Oh, how come those guys are in balls and chains? And oh, the Russian guard says, Oh, 
they were on the ice when Joe Watson scored a short <laughs> goal. <laughs> oh my God, Almighty! Oh I laugh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's the funniest oh, story boy. I've heard. That's great. Oh, oh, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but oh it, yeah. As we said, I know we're we're kind of getting a little tight on time, but the um, you know, so as you noted, uh, we. Great season that year too. You lose in the finals. Uh, eventually, uh, you and Keith Allen come to an agreement that you want to uh, move on. Uh, yep. As, as, as yep. things progress, you go to Colorado. You're there for 16 games. We won't go yep. into all the gory details, but of course, uh, yep. push from behind by Wayne Babbage. Your leg shatters. Um, yep. Now, I'm just wondering about, about you know again co- overcoming adversity here. That's kind of the theme here as we get to this part of the story. More so than any part of your career, I think, in yep. your life. Um, you kind of have to know with the severity of that injury that you're not going to play again suddenly, boom, just like yep. that. Um, yep. The recovery had to be unbelievable and painful. Uh, how did you deal with that psychologically, coming to the end of your career in such a fashion? Just the physical and psychological challenges you faced during that time in 1978. Uh, yeah, you know what, uh, Mark? Uh, honestly, I never thought it would end that way. Uh, nobody thinks you're going to end that way with a bad injury. And it was 2:02 the second period. I was stretched for the, I stretched out for the puck. The puck was shut in our zone, and goalie went behind the net, set it on the goal line. I went to reach for it. Uh, just as I reached for it, I got pushed my lower back, exploded in the boards, and broke my right leg in 13 places. Uh, and I never realized the bone had penetrated my sock and everything else. It was sticking out. I remember John Namiko was uh, the first guy to me, and. Uh, he said, Joey, okay? I said, I don't know. He says, oh, no, no, you're not. Just lay there. I said, what do you mean, just lay there? And he had seen the bone sticking out, and uh, so I laid there, and they gave me a shot of morphine in each arm and tried to settle me down, and then they take me in the medical room there in St. Louis, and they try to straighten my leg out, and, and uh, oh, my God, it was it was terrible. But, you know, I went through uh, I went through hell. I laid in the hospital off and on for a year and a half, and, and uh, I had nine operations on my right leg, and funny my last operation mark was about 15 years ago we were again over in europe playing in finland mm-hmm. and we're playing a couple couple games a day and i had really bad pain i had walked to my toes my right toes for 24 years wow. uh, because my leg was two and a half inch shorter than on the left leg so i phoned dr bard Losey at the university of pennsylvania he was a doctor at the time and, and i said doc i'm in bad pain i said what are you doing i said well I'm I'm in I'm in Finland playing hockey. Well, you're not supposed to. I said I know that I know that, but I got to get something done with my leg. So I come back, and about three weeks later, I go to the Pen- University of Pennsylvania. They, now I had a ten and a half hour operation. They, what they did, Mark, they cut my thigh, my femur in two areas, right through the bone, uh, put a twelve inch titanium rod in my thigh, and screwed the two cuts into this rod and left the three-quarters gap between the two cuts, and I took a bunch of calcium pills, and uh, lo and behold, my leg my leg uh, grew by almost two inches. Wow. And I, I have a very little, I have a little limp, but I have a titanium, titanium rod on my thigh, and then I got a new kneecap and everything else, and I feel as good as new. The only time I don't feel good is when I got to go to the airport and got to go through, got to go through security. <laughs> <laughs> They're always searching nice. my leg. I said, "What is there?" I said, "Well, there's titanium in there." There's what? <laughs> titanium in there. <laughs> but uh, it was a very difficult time in my life. Uh, you know, I never thought my career would end that way. But, um, but anyway, you know what? You're right. Mr. Snyder and, and Keith Allen asked me. Uh, they they told me they wanted to. Uh, 
uh, start breaking in the young defenseman. And I said, well, I still think I can play. And they said, well, if you want to play there, we're going to have to trade you. I said, fine. So I gave them three teams, and one being Colorado. I go to Colorado, but it didn't end up very happily for me, that's for sure. The only thing that happened was I came back to work for the Flyers, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, you sure have. And I, that's where I wanted yeah. to conclude. Your unique experience in being uh, in year one and still being uh, you know, with the organization and uh, directly and indirectly as well, a big part of the alumni. And when I think of the Flyers, I think of the former players, and I think of Ed Snyder, I really feel that you guys have a real family atmosphere and a real yep. respect for the guys who, who played. Uh, I just want to get your comments on that. It's true, Mark. Uh, uh, Mr. Snyder, he brought us. He, he obviously brought us respect to the, to the organization, and and uh, and not only not only in Philadelphia, but throughout the hockey world. And I think that not only maybe just the sports world, because you know, Mr. Snyder, I think his tenure was longer than anybody in professional sports as being a, a one-man owner for all the years. I know Pittsburgh Steelers have uh, they had the Rooneys, but they had four or five different people. That Mr. Snyder came in '67, and he owned the team for 50, 50 some years. I remember before he passed on, Bob Clark and I and Bernie went out to visit him, and we were out in uh, California. He was out of his home there, and he's he kind of sh- he kind of lost a lot of weight. And uh, we were there for three days. As we were leaving, he called me over. He says, "Joe, he says, you know what? He says I've known you 50 years. We worked together 50 years, and you know what? Not a lot of people can say they know somebody. They might have known somebody 50 years, but not worked with them 50 right. years." So, kind of brought tears to my eyes. Now, I still think about that. Three years ago, when it happened, it happened to him. I, it just, uh, it really had, it still has an effect on me. You know, I just think of him a lot, especially when we're when we're losing and what he would do. We're winning, he'd be so happy, and when we're <laughs> losing, he'd be so upset, like we all are. Right. But uh, he had a profound uh, 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 on my career. He's very, you know, it was just incredible what he did for me. Not only my, me, everybody in our in our organization and. And he's respected throughout the the hockey world, obviously, I think in all of sports, he really is. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think you personally have been able to, along with your, your uh, Flyer teammates, continue that in the, with the alumni and with a, a multitude of uh, charities and youth hockey uh, endeavors that you're involved in. So, uh, Joe, as I said, appreciate going a little overtime with us. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and it was even uh, better than expected. I greatly appreciate it, and certainly respect what you've done on and off the ice, and thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Hey, hey if I could tell you one more story, Mark. I, mm-hmm. I spoke at a function here about three weeks ago at uh, Comcast Corporate. Yeah. They had 600 people there, and uh, and in a way, this gentleman introduced me. He says, I'm going to introduce you to this gentleman today that has the longest tenure as an employee for Comcast Corporate just Comcast itself, 52 years. And I'm, a, I'm the number one employee at, with Comcast Corporate out of 195,000 employees. Wow. I'm number one. I had no idea I was that. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> and uh, so uh, a little boy from Smithers, British Columbia, uh, still here today. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, 
You can talk to, contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.